she's never lied to me in her entire life. I've like, I have never known her to speak a single falsehood, even in situations when she probably should have. So this really shook me up because they really got to her in a way that I don't think anything has gotten to her in her life. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Culturally Relevant, a podcast about film, television, art, and culture. I'm David Chen, and joining me today on the podcast is going to be Frankie Huang, a writer and illustrator from Beijing. Frankie Huang has just published a piece in the New York Times entitled My Grandmother's Favorite Scammer, which is a very powerful story about how uh, her grandmother was manipulated into giving away vast quantities of her savings. And it's an interesting story because her grandmother is very capable, uh, and so Frankie kind of interrogates why is it that this person who was otherwise very smart and sensible uh, allowed herself to be scammed? What does that say about her? What does it say about us? What does it say about society and how we treat the elderly? It's a great piece. I'll link to it in the show notes. I recommended it on the podcast last week, and I'm really glad to have Frankie join me today to talk about the article, how she uncovered the truth behind the scammer as well as uh, what the implications of this story are for her and her grandmother's lives. Um, so stay tuned for that conversation. Of course, you can always find more conversations uh, on Culturally Relevant at culturallyrelevantshow.com. You can also email me at culturallyrelevantshow at gmail.com uh, or follow the show on Twitter at crevshow, that's C-R-E-V-S-H-O-W. I hope everyone's doing well out there. It's a super busy month with everyone preparing for the holidays, uh, but we got plenty of podcasting goodness uh, coming your way on Culturally Relevant, starting with this conversation with Frankie Huang, again, a writer and illustrator from Beijing, whose newest piece in the New York Times is called My Grandmother's Favorite Scammer. Stay tuned for the conversation, followed by my weekly recommendations. Frankie Huang, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you for inviting me. So let's talk about this piece entitled My Grandmother's Favorite Scammer. How did you first get exposed to this story and walk us through kind of how it came on your radar and, and how you learned the full extent of what was happening? Um, I mean, I was part of the story when, like towards the end of it, actually, I was in an airport in Shanghai about to go on a business trip when, as I wrote in the article, my mom started texting me, asking me, if something was weird, something weird was going on with my grandmother. Um, and I got really freaked out because my mom almost never tells me about anything that's wrong. And when I found out the details that my grandmother wanted the bank pin and that she was being really mysterious about it, um, like all my, you know, spider senses basically got set off. It just sounded like um, something terrible was happening. It was definitely a scam. But even my mom wasn't completely sure what was happening because my grandmother said, you don't understand what's happening. I can't tell you anything, but you have to trust me. This goes way deeper than you think. You know, it sounded very espionage. Right. So, so maybe I, I bought it for maybe like 10 seconds where I thought, you know, cause my grandmother was, I guess, working as in like an underground freedom fighter in the 1940s. So maybe it's some like old connection, but clearly I've just been watching too many spy films. Um, there was no way that was happening and somehow involves a bank pin. So I was standing there in the airport and I started looking up things on my phone about bank scams that involve anything 
uh, involving secrecy. And then there are just tons of them, just like page after page after page of search results about this. I was pretty sure that my grandmother was in trouble. So I started to call everybody in the family to mobilize them, to get them to talk to her, to warn her. And at the same time, uh, because my grandmother still has a job, so she has an assistant, I called her and said, can you please reach out to her banks and say to freeze her accounts immediately? And then like basically all the news that I got back from everyone were terrible news. My my grandmother's brothers couldn't get her to relent, uh, nor my parents. Her assistant called back and said that the banks couldn't freeze any accounts without my grandmother's personally expressing the wish for it. And so I was sure that her, the scammers were, you know, continuing to get away with whatever that they were doing while we were wasting time. Later that day, uh, I had to fly to Guangzhou for, for work. And then when I landed, my grandmother was still sort of being very, very stubborn. I started to think that maybe I should call the police. My family was very against this. She said that they're, they're beginning to tell me that I'm being paranoid. But I, was, I just felt like something was terribly wrong. And then so that evening, I called my grandmother one more time to let her know that I'm going to call the police and then I couldn't reach her. And then I started freaking out because I was certain that the scammers got what they wanted and that they killed her and got rid of her body and I was too late. So I was crying hysterically, you know, calling the police for the first time in my life. And miraculously, uh, I got, when I was transferred to the local station near where she lived, the, the officer said that they had, picked up this old lady who said that she was um, the victim of a, of a phone scam and they were taking her statement. You know, when I spoke to her on the phone, I sounded like a hysterical, crazy person. And she was completely calm. She just said, oh, yeah, the nice officers are, you know, they made me some tea. I'm giving my statement. It's fine. And then I said, I have to come see you tomorrow. And then she said, oh, no, it's fine. It's all good. Like, like everything was fine. And so I thought maybe her money wasn't stolen, but of course I wasn't going to um, just listen to her. Uh, both my parents are in America. She doesn't have any family in Beijing. So yeah, I flew over to see her and she was okay. Like she was um, way calmer than she should have been, which really worried me because I wondered if, you know, psychologically, she's so in shock, or right, right. maybe she didn't really understand exactly what happened. Maybe she didn't know that she lost all her money, as I as I found out later on yeah. from the officer. Like, I just, I was still really worried about her. Um, but but she, I, was, I, she had like a lot of equanimity about about the scam, basically, right? Yeah, she. I I feel like she still didn't understand how much she was abused and, um, and manipulated and betrayed throughout this. She, she feels like I still don't, you know, like even after this has happened and we've talked about this multiple times, I still don't know exactly, you know, her, her true emotions regarding the whole event. Like, obviously she said, I, I've been manipulated and lied to and, and like they got to me, but she's also not, as angry as I think I would be if this happened to me, I think I would be uh, in a very dark place for a long time if 
I just lost myself to to do fa- the fantasy yeah. the way she was. So I'm I'm not asking for like a dollar amount or anything, but can you communicate the magnitude of the amount of money that was lost in this scam? So her um, accounts were cleaned out. They were pretty much empty other than a few uh, timed uh, products that had some like extra mechanisms for releasing the funds. So it was a lot. It was like everything. Yeah. So everything except for like, you know, a small amount of money was gone to this scam, right? And and the scam essentially was that somebody needed her help with some uh, with a government operation to like yeah. uh, to capture money launderers, and they had said like we need your help to be like as part of this secret crew mm-hmm. um, to help with money laundering, and that's why she couldn't tell anyone about it. Yes, um, and so they they got her information, and then they extracted all the money, and then I, I'm guessing mm-hmm. they they disappeared into the night uh, with her. Yeah, I mean the the amazing thing about the operation was that it happened over um, multiple weeks. Um, she met their operatives, you know, she was taken to a remote hotel where she spoke to a screen that had a voice scrambler. Um, wow. you know, so it's it all elaborate. It sounded like a spy film. Like she was actually like an elderly, you know, um, Ethan Hunt or something like going on missions, uh, lying to, her assistant to her family about her whereabouts, about the reason why her phone was like um, gone from her presence for a few days. And she's never lied to me in her entire life. I've like, I have never known her to speak a single falsehood, even in situations when she probably should have. So this really shook me up because you know, they really got to her in a way that I don't think anything has gotten to her in her life. Yeah. And I, I think hearing you talk about the story, a couple of things do surprise me. You said she still has a job right now. Is that right? Yes. Yes. So what does she do? Um, she works in uh, debt restructuring. Um, she she works with a team that consults with uh, businesses in trouble in China. Yeah. So, uh, she, so yeah. she's like a very like... Active, per- she's not like super infirm or anything. She's still like oh. has her wits about her, basically, right? She's extremely sharp. I mean, you know, as people get older, they do get forgetful about little things. Like she has trouble finding her glasses, or she never knows where her scarf is. But if you ask her about, uh, you know, bankruptcy policy around the world, she can talk to you about specific sections in like Chapter Eleven. Uh, and talk about the GE restructuring case, like without looking at any materials. So she's incredibly sharp and yeah. um, very, very smart woman. So what do you attribute her getting taken in by this scam to? Like, I think you have some theories as to why this scam in particular was appealing to her, right? Yeah. So, um, I mean, this is connected to something that I've always worried about, which is, She's always been a powerful person. Like she had enormous amounts of agency. She's able to make things happen. And she did a lot for her country and for her family. She's very used to being in control. But that feeling has slipped away from her um, over the years. And she doesn't really understand the way a lot of things work anymore. And 
her services aren't really needed anymore. There are newer people in her field sort of stepping up and making things happen. Sometimes she doesn't like what's going on, or sometimes she feels like she can contribute, but nobody really wants her help. I mean, objectively, she's turning 90 next year. Um, I think anyone would think twice before employing someone this old simply because you know, you, everyone has grandparents and you see the way older people usually are and you kind of wonder, can they perform at a certain capacity? I mean, this is part of the discussion around some of the, you know, the Democratic presidential candidates, right? Like when, as people get older, their, their ability to perform really gets questioned. And that's something that really hurts my grandmother because she believes in her heart that she's no less capable now pushing 90 as she was you know, when she was in her younger years. And she doesn't like to think about how am I not as good? Am I not able to give people what they need? Because she's always been helpful. She's always been the expert. She's always been um, someone who came to others, other people's rescue. So when when the scam, when she told me this, the story of the scam, I really marveled at how brilliant these scammers are. You know, I, I'm sure that they must work with people that profile uh, potential victims like my grandmother before they actually go in. So they know that she has been a civil servant. Um, she doesn't care that much about money, but, she, you know, she's a very proud person who cares about her name and her dignity. So... You know, they tell her that your reputation is on the line, but you have this opportunity to, you know, get these bad guys that are scamming other people in the country and help your government. Like, these are all things I think she she was used to hearing when she was younger, when she was still more active in, in, in influencing policy or um, making sure that, you know, bad things don't happen. So this is sort of like... A, a chance for her to like play out I don't know something that she probably desires all the time just like return to a time when yeah she was she was important yeah and they, they that's just yeah they appealed to her desire to feel important and to mm -hmm. feel like uh to feel ultra competent and as yeah. though her activities were a critical component of any enterprise. Absolutely. And, and you know what I was reminded of reading your, your story in uh, the New York Times is uh, the book Being Mortal by Etel Gawande. Have you heard of that book? I love uh, that book. Yeah, it's a great book. And, and part of the book that's interesting is that most of medicine, at least modern medicine in the United States, is they treat aging as a disease. Well, they treat aging as a disease, and it's geared towards right extending life as long as possible. Exactly, like that's all they care about is extending life as long as possible. And the question they should ask is, like they, meaning the medical establishment, should mm -hmm. ask is, what are the things that a person needs to give their life meaning? Yes, you know? how can how can you live purposefully and with integrity? Right, and when I was reading your story, it felt like this is what your grandmother was lacking in some way, even though she has a job, it like that she was lacking this in some way. And that's what this scam gave to her, right? Yes. Was the, the ability to give her life meaning. Mm -hmm. And we very often don't think about how to do that for, uh, for the elderly, you know? Uh, even, so I think uh, 
as a, an Asian American myself, I mean, I think there is a um, a lot of pressure to take care of your parents, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, my parents' parents like lived with us for many stretches at a time. And yeah. I think there's at some point my parents are going to end up living with me. I think that, that it might not be always, it might not be, you know, for decades or anything, you know, but like that'll probably happen at some point is my guess. Right. And, mm-hmm. uh, and I like that already to me is like, uh, a way in which, uh, like Chinese Americans or Chinese people take care of their parents more than, uh, than a, you know, non-Chinese Americans in America, right? Like, uh, I, I already had, like, kind of this mental model of, like, oh, uh, it's better if my parents live with me than in a nursing home. Like, uh, that, 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 would, that would be an optimal outcome. But when but I... That's really... emotionally, that's, that's the thing that, that feels best. Right, right. But what I was yeah. struck reading your article is, like, that is actually insufficient, Right, like, mm-hmm. like we not only need to worry about a good living situation, mm-hmm. but you also need to worry about like what is a good like emotional and psychological situation of like how can um, parents or grandparents feel like they are contributing something to their family to to society, mm-hmm. right? And I I don't think your piece really. I mean, it's ob- obviously like it's a very fascinating piece, and you you cover a lot of ground in it, but. I don't know that you've, you really have an answer for like how to accomplish that. This is extremely intractable, uh, intractable problem, right? Like I don't know that yeah. you can solve that, but I'm curious if you have any thoughts on that. Like if, if you could go back and do it over, if you could re- rewind time, you know, by a year, right? Or five years, like, do you feel like there's anything differently you could have done to avoid this outcome? I'm not sure if, I mean, I, I haven't really thought about it that way because um, to me, that's not a super helpful perspective, um, at least for, for our situation in particular. And I'm glad you mentioned that book because it's actually very influential in the way that I think about, uh, about aging and about my grandmother. And I even bought a Chinese copy for my parents to read because I think it, it pertains so much to our family situation because, um, the author's father is very like, you know, proud, um, Indian man, he reminded me of my grandmother a little bit in that she's not satisfied just to, you know, just to be alive and just to, you know, have a good material existence. She needs purpose. She needs, um, to feel like, you know, there's meaning to her life. And in the book, there were all these examples of, um, nursing homes that, for example, brought in children, uh, or pets or plants for for the elderly to la- look after so that something depended on them to thrive. And the the results are sort of, you know, limited to individual situations, but they seem really promising. And that's something that I think about a lot, but on a more macro scale for society, because nursing homes is still for elderly people who who can't really look after themselves anymore. But I think that isolation and loneliness starts a lot earlier um, than when people's bodies start failing them. So the thing that I think about is actually, you know, sort of preventive measures uh, that um, governments and corporations should be looking into in order to allow people to continue to have um, joyful and meaningful lives, you know, as they're approaching aging, but not quite 
like in that really desperate state, the way sort of my grandmother found herself in when when she became very, very vulnerable to scammers. So like, for example, in China, the digital revolution is like just mind blowing in the way they're innovating everything. But when I look at different types of UX, when I look at service design, I can see that they're only thinking about young people who are the ones who are demanding innovation, who already know how to use new ways of doing things as they roll out. There's nothing about how to ease older people into using these new types of services and products or even considering how to, how are they used to doing things in the old way? How do they like to use telephones? How do they like to get information? You know, the taxi hailing uh, app, Didi, is basically like ubiquitous across different cities. Um, and yet they haven't come up with like an easier version that older people can also use. So now you see old people waving by the side of the road, needing someone to pick them up, maybe to go to the hospital. I don't know. And then cars just keep driving by them because they're not holding a smartphone, telling a car to pull up to them. So like, there's so many examples where old people are clearly being ignored. And, you know, the message that's kind of being sent is, why don't you people just go and die? Because we're not, we don't want to serve you. You have no place in in the new world that we're building. And I think that general attitude, you know, they can feel it and it's terrible. It's, and it's going to, you know, lower the quality of their lives and their emotional and psychological well-being. And then this is how the scammers can slip in. And it's not really something the families alone can really protect them from. Yeah. I mean, I think you're framing it as more of like a societal Absolutely. Issue, right. That it, yeah. I guess it's a combination of all of our institutions, right? Private companies, the government. Are there things that you think can be practically done to uh, prevent something like this from happening? You mentioned like, you know, improving UX for, for the elderly or even factoring in their preferences and desires, right? Would, Absolutely. Would be a step. Um, I mean, acknowledging that the older people are still around, you know, as people, as consumers, um, as as members of society that can still contribute their their knowledge, their experiences, you know, even their labor, like they need to be treated like real people um, in order for them to not feel sad and excluded. Like people really need to, the whole society need to commit and respect the elderly, you know, at, at their core for, for positive change to come. Otherwise, when you treat elderly as a disease, which you know, is something I think people are getting used to doing. It's a it's a terrible habit, and people will feel like a tumor essentially rather than a person. Uh, how much of your time do you spend in China versus in the United States these days? I live in China right now, so um, I'm mostly in China. But sadly, I live in Shanghai, so it's not um, very close to Beijing. I try to go see my grandmother. Uh, regularly, but not as often as I like. And your parents live in the United States, right? Yes. Yeah. So I guess uh, in in the time you spent in both countries, do you do you sense any differences about how each country uh, treats the elderly? Uh, is it largely the same? Very different? Like what what is your perception? Um, I feel like I don't. I haven't observed older people in the U.S. as much, but I did used to have a job. Uh, surveying older Chinese people 
in their homes about their health. And what they told me was that when they were in China, there were many more opportunities for them to, to be social and to have fun versus in the U.S. where like the food and the environment is better, but they feel much more isolated and alone and without a network that's already on the ground. They had fewer things to do. Like I don't, I don't necessarily know that what they say is representative, but I do uh, get the sense that loneliness is probably a big problem for for the elderly in America, particularly um, in areas that are less populated and smaller towns. You know, there those n- people's networks are sort of smaller to begin with, and as you know, their children may leave town to work elsewhere. Yeah, I think um, isolation is probably a, a big issue. Yeah, and I, I like that your uh, piece kind of frames the problem in, in terms of like the root cause, right? Which mm-hmm. is, yeah, the desire for meaning, the desire for uh, purpose, the desire for uh, socialization and partnership. Uh, these are all kind of at the root of what can lead someone down a, uh, a bad path. So as, as we wrap up here, Frankie, I'm curious, uh, like, has there been any follow-up with regards to the scammers, like, uh, do you are, do you anticipate they will be caught or do you anticipate they will not be caught? Curious what the aftermath is there. It's hard to say, but uh, last week I actually read a report that a Chinese scam ring got busted in Malaysia and 680 people got arrested. Um, my first thought was, was actually... A massive operation then. Yeah. Massive. My first thought was actually maybe my grandmother's scammer is in there. Mm. Um, but it's hard to say. Uh, what I do know is that most of the scammers uh, who scam uh, the elderly in China actually are located abroad. So um, I think I've heard about people being based in Taiwan, Malaysia, Indonesia, and Japan. So it's hard to it's really hard to say because uh, they're really quite pro at all this. I mean, you know, their their psychological um, <laughs> their their design is amazing like i am impressed despite my disgust and it's i i don't really hope for the money being brought back i think my whole family is just really relieved that my grandmother is such a resilient person that she came away from this not you know being filled with guilt and um sort of self-loathing that she still um, she's glad that nobody's hurt, I guess, and and that she can just she can still move forward and do what she loves, which is her work. And I think that's really the best that we can hope for. That after this is all over, the scammers can no longer continue to hurt her because that's the thing that would have upset us the most. Uh, last question: Is mm-hmm. there anything you feel like you will do differently uh, in your own? Uh, regular or digital life to avoid scams? Like, has this taught you anything about um, yes. what to do about scams? <laughs> um, yes, I'm definitely just very paranoid, I guess, is the, I think, the correct word to describe my suspicion for uh, any and all contact from strangers, even from um, institutions that project trust. Like I, I have to vet everything. I have to check. I have to make sure that I'm speaking to who I'm speaking to, that I never give away information without someone proving to me that they should receive it. I mean, this is all we can do on a basic level, I think, living in this day and age. Everything can be faked. Videos can be faked. 
um, yeah, we just have to keep our wits about us. Indeed. Well, a sobering message, but a needed one. Um, Frankie Huang is a writer and illustrator from Beijing. Her new piece in the New York Times is entitled My Grandmother's Favorite Scammer. Frankie, thanks so much for joining me today. It was a pleasure speaking to you, David. Welcome to Weekly Recommendations, the segment of the show where I recommend something I've been watching, drinking, eating, smelling, whatever. This week, I want to recommend an article from BuzzFeed News. Uh, This article is entitled The 100 Memes That Defined the 2010s. It's written by Katie Natopoulos, Julia Reinstein, and Ryan Broderick, who are three of my favorite writers and reporters. And they basically break down all, all the memes that kind of helped to define this last decade, all the things that we cared about on the internet, all the things that we made into memes and passed along to our friends and drove into virality. Uh, and what these things kind of say about how society is changing and what they say about what we value. Uh, It's funny, it's well-written, it's insightful. Uh, I I hope you check it out. I I think it's worth taking, you know, a few minutes out of your day. It took me like probably 10, 20 minutes to read it, but it's just so fascinating to think back on all the things uh, that went viral that were very buzzy. And uh, there was many I knew about, some I didn't know about, but all of these things kind of tell us about what we value these days. And so I'd encourage you to check out this article. It's entitled The 100 Memes That Defined the 2010s. That's going to do it for us here today on Culturally Relevant. Find more episodes of the show at culturallyrelevantshow.com. Find us on Apple Podcasts or wherever your podcasts are downloaded. Uh, You can also follow us on Twitter at crevshow. That's C-R-E-V-S-H-O-W. This podcast was edited and produced by me, David Chen. And it was powered by Simplecast, a great solution for maintaining or building a new podcast. Check out Simplecast.com. Thanks to them for powering this show. And thank you for listening. We'll see you next week.